0: Well, peace be with you. I'm also with you. Man, it's a, it's a great privilege to be here with you guys this morning. Um, I've kind, I'm kind of out of a rhythm of preaching in the mornings, because our church meets at 3.30 p.m., so this is, a, this is awesome. This is a, uh, I don't get to do this that often, so it's a, like I said, it's a privilege for me to be uh, with you guys uh, this morning. Uh, so I'm actually the flip side. I might actually say this afternoon a few times. Um, because I'm used to meeting in the afternoon. But um, I love you guys' as church. I love what God is doing here uh, in the Galleria. I love what God is doing through you as a people. Um, I'm grateful for Taylor, for Paul, for everyone who uh, considers this place uh, a home. And so, East then, I want you to know, is, is grateful for you uh, and for how you guys have come alongside us as well uh, in helping us plant. We just recently planted, uh, launched our church uh, in February, uh, and so we're just a few months old uh, seeking to do what you guys are doing in Galleria. We're seeking to do uh, in the East End. And, and if you don't know where East End is, uh, it's, it's essentially southeast, east of downtown. And so if you've ever been to Ninfas on Navigation, that whole general area, uh, that's where we find uh, ourselves. So we appreciate all the prayers uh, you can offer up for us. Um, we, we would greatly appreciate it. So... We've continued uh, in this series in the book of Exodus, right? As uh, my brother just mentioned, and 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 it's uh, this book is a book that tells us of Israel's divinely orchestrated uh, uh, rescue, right, from slavery, uh, from bondage in uh, in Egypt, and God saves the people of Israel so that they can become God's chosen and priestly kingdom so that then they could reflect God to the nations, right? But more than that, the story of Exodus reveals for all of God's people, us included today, what it means to be redeemed by God and what it means to worship and to serve him. And so today is no different. As we look at Exodus chapter 5 verses 22 through chapter 6 verse 13, we want to ask that question again. We want to ask God, what are you teaching us about who you are? What are you teaching us about what it looks like to worship you today in 2019 in Galleria in Houston, Texas? So I want to start by asking us a question, and I want you to think about this. Think about this question, what things in life are worth the wait and what brings, I'm sorry, and what things aren't worth the wait? So for example, waiting to save up money to finally take that one month trip, that one month vacation with your family, that might be something worth the wait, right? How about something a bit more serious, waiting for a spouse? Is it worth the wait to find a godly maturing husband or wife? who's aware of their brokenness, aggressively pursuing maturity in Christ. Most definitely worth the wait, right? Because the consequences of not waiting can be destructive. Or how about something a bit more uh, that gets to our heart for some of us, myself included, with my wife waiting to get pregnant. A journey of waiting that can be and is usually extremely painful for many couples. Maybe it's a family member or a friend you've been asking God to save and to redeem from a life of brokenness. Yet still, after many years, that they only seem to either be getting worse or at the, at the very least, stuck in the same place. And I bet all of us in here, as as we thought about these things, maybe you came up with things that I didn't mention. As we thought about things we've been willing to wait for in the past or things we're currently waiting for in the present, have been faced with the real difficulty of this waiting game, right? The long process, the tough journey of waiting for that thing. We may have even thought of giving up on that thing, that dream vacation, that friend, that family member finally coming to the feet of Christ, that reconciled relationship. Why? Because we haven't seen it happen yet. And actually, we've seen the quite opposite, things getting worse. The temptation to give up hope is is very real, right? It's no joke. And if you're in the room here this morning, you'd be lying to say that you haven't felt this at some point in your life if you aren't currently feeling it right now. See, as sinners, waiting patiently goes against our sinful nature. As people swimming in a culture of instant gratification, of fast food, of information, literally at our fingertips, it's become especially difficult for us to wait. It's true that our present day world doesn't know what it means to wait. Patiently, right? We demand and we demand and we demand. And when we don't get what we want, how we want it, we write a bad review about it on Yelp. <laughs> well, this afternoon, we continue to follow Moses, right? In the Israelites' journey that was full of waiting as well. And my hope and prayer today is that this story of the Israelites in this passage would remind us of a simple yet powerful truth for each and every one of us, that God's promises are worth the wait, especially when waiting is at its hardest. That God's promises are worth the wait, especially when waiting is at its hardest. So let's begin by looking at verses 22 and 23 from chapter five. Let me read those again for us. It says, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Wow, that's pretty bold. By reading this, it's very obvious that Moses was very angry and frustrated, right? Moses is regretting going on this mission because since he first asked Pharaoh to let his people go on a three-day retreat in the wilderness so that they could serve and worship their God, Pharaoh has intentionally made labor so much more harder for the Israelites. So much so that the Israelites turn on Moses, pronounce judgment on him in the previous verses in chapter 5. Can you imagine that? Your own people turning on you when all you wanted to do was help them, when all you wanted to do was see them flourish, and in turn, they turn their back on you and then go that step further and revile and slander you when all you wanted to do was help them. That was Moses' situation right here. So in his frustration, what does he do? He goes to God in prayer. And I want to take a quick pit stop here to apply that to us because I, I don't want us to miss this. Moses, as frustrated and as angry as he was, didn't take it out on other people. So in other words, uh, he didn't subtweet it or he didn't post a passive-aggressive post on Facebook hoping that the person that offended him would see it and then feel guilty and ashamed. Right? He, he didn't do that kind of thing. He went directly to God. In prayer, as hurt, as broken as he was for his own countrymen to have turned on him and reviled and slandered him. So in other words, he didn't seek retribution. All of his unrestrained anger and frustration and discouragement, he took it before the throne of grace. And what a lesson for us today, right? when we're offended, when we're reviled, when we're slandered, when we are condemned by others, do we first go to God with it? Or do we go to someone else? Do we immediately go to another person with our criticism, with our harsh words? Man, I think this is a very real caution and warning for us, right? To go to God with our hurt. To go to God with our, even those who have offended us. To go to God with those or bring those people to God in prayer. This is what Moses did. He goes to God in prayer. And what does he say? He he basically accuses God of the evil that Pharaoh was executing on the people of Israel. He says, why did you ever send me? If this is how it was going to turn out, God... I thought you would be with us. I thought you would deliver us. But you haven't done that at all. You've actually done the opposite, God. What are you doing? So what does Moses do here? Moses takes a very beautiful doctrine. And it's the sovereignty of God, the doctrine that tells us in Scripture that God is in control of all things, that God is king of the universe, and that there is no maverick molecule in The cosmos, he takes that doctrine and twists it. And this is the only way we could ever accuse God of evil, right? Moses knew God was sovereign, but instead of finding comfort in the fact that God was in control, even of Pharaoh's heart, in his impatience, he uses it to accuse God of evil. Wow. So this is where Moses is at at the moment, allowing his full range of emotions to be poured out before God in prayer. And how does God respond? Well, let's look at the following verses, and I'll read verse 1 first for us. It says, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his Land. So God responds to Moses as if waiting for Moses to come to him with this divine now. God responds, responds to Moses with this divine now. Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. When Moses was at his wits end and comes in frustration saying, this is not going to happen. God says, wait, 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 wait. Now you're about to see the powerful work that I'm going to do to Pharaoh kind of like a man waiting at the altar nervously for his soon-to-be bride. The bride has delayed the whole wedding by being late. And just at the moment when the groom is beginning to have this intense feeling of fear that maybe he will be stood up at his own wedding at the altar, the gates are flung wide open and he sees his soon-to-be bride coming in in all of her beauty. And he says, wow, that was worth the wait. The moment when Moses is at his wits end and says, I don't know how this is going to happen. God says, now you're about to see what I'm going to do. And it was worth the wait. Essentially, he's telling Moses, get ready, Moses. I can only imagine the anticipation in Moses' eyes as he heard those words from God. And then God gives him some more details on what he's about to do. Verses two through eight say this. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land Of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And then, mic drop. So after reassuring Moses by telling him, now you'll see what I'm about to do, Yahweh begins his response to Moses' doubt by stating, in a sense, his credentials and he starts by saying, I am the Lord. Now for those who, who may not be aware, anywhere in scripture when you see Lord capitalized, it's essentially Yahweh, the great I am. When, Jesus, when God appeared to, to Abraham, we, we heard about this uh, a couple of weeks ago where, where Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them the I am has sent you. And God promises this covenant with Moses, right? So God is telling him, I am the covenant keeping God. Moreover, I established a covenant with your forefathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to them, I revealed myself as God almighty, as El Shaddai. And I established a covenant with them and never broke it. Yet with Moses, he's telling him, Moses, he's re, I've revealed the full meaning of my name, Yahweh. I am the covenant keeping God who will deliver you from slavery, from bondage in Egypt. So if I didn't fail Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, much more do you think I will fail you? Of course not. So God, by starting off, in stating that he is the Lord, is reminding Moses, I am the covenant-keeping God. I am the faithful one. Essentially, he's telling Moses this. He's saying, trust my character, Moses. When you don't know what's going on. When there is confusion, trust my character. On top of that, in alignment with my inability to break my covenant with you. I have heard the cries of my people. I am near to them as well. I have heard their cries. I have seen their pain, their groaning and their suffering has reached my ears and I have remembered my covenant that I made with their forefathers. Moses, I cannot deny myself. And God told Moses to speak these words to the Israelites, he He first started with that, I am the Lord. That's important because God is wanting to get it into the minds of his people, who he is. He is Yahweh, the great I am. If they doubt their circumstances, his character alone should be and is enough for them to trust him. And brothers and sisters, God is telling us the same thing this morning. No matter the circumstance you find yourself in, as tough, as gut-wrenching, as painful as it may be, when you can't make sense of your circumstance that you're currently in at the moment or that you will be in in the future, he tells you, trust my character, child. I am the covenant-keeping God. When you look throughout human history, Men have risen to power and they have fallen. Men have promised things that they could not uphold. But throughout human history, you see that I have made promise time and time and again, and I have upheld my promises. You can trust my character. He's calling us to trust in his goodness, his perfect love, his wisdom, which is infinitely higher than our wisdom. And it's infinitely higher than our own earthly logic. And brothers and sisters, if we find that we need more than his character to trust him, then, then that means that there's a misplaced trust in our hearts. There's a misaligned trust, misaligned worship going on in our hearts. Psalm 73, 26 says this, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion Forever. So if we need more than his good character towards us, he's not functioning. He might not be functioning as our full portion. And we might be trusting in circumstances, earthly satisfactions, human wisdom or power to bring peace. But this text this morning reminds us that we can trust in him, in his character that is full of love, care, and concern for what Isaiah calls this flickering wicks and bruised reeds. Isaiah 42.3 reminds us that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So have you ever seen a flickering wick, so a candle that's about to go out? or a bruised reed, which is essentially a tall piece of grass blown about by the wind, if it's broken, it's on its last string, when we are at our wits end, when we are in pain and confused and crying out, why God? And where that flickering wick about to go out, that bruised weed, about to be blown off in the wind, Yahweh comes to us and doesn't turn the flick off. He doesn't finish the job by pulling the bruised reed. No, he comes with care, with concern, with love and says, let me repair, let me comfort, let me heal. What a God that we serve, right? This is our God. This is the God who would come to Israel's rescue here in our text. God then tells them, all that he will do for them. And in a beautiful piece of literature here in scripture, brothers and sisters, Yahweh flexes his almighty status. See, we see the word I referring to Yahweh a total of 17 times in comparison with there being only one time the phrase and you is used, speaking of the Israelites. So basically God is telling Israel, your duty is only to know that I am the Lord. And let me tell you something. Oh, you're going to know. I guarantee that when I deliver you with such a masterful and powerful plan that only someone like me could accomplish, you will know. He's telling them, I will work it out. I will act. Your duty is only to know that I am the Lord. And I promise you, you will know. I'm going to work it out by my power. So Yahweh says he will act and execute, and Israel is only to trust and to know. And this is powerful stuff here for us as well. And then, of course, as he started his, uh, his speech, if you will, he ends it in the same way by saying, I am the Lord. That's kind of like the two brackets that enclose this powerful speech from God to Moses. He's reminding him, I am the Lord. This is what I'll do. Remember, I am the Lord. And if you've been a Christian for some time or simply if you've been exposed to the gospel of grace that says we do nothing to earn or to execute our salvation, our redemption, or our right standing with God, our justification, right? Then this kind of lopsided act should sound very familiar to you, right? Why? Well, because that's our story. That's your story if you're a Christian in the room. It was God who opened your eyes to see the beauty of Christ and see him for who he is. It was God who opened your heart and understanding to the gospel. It was God who granted you faith to believe in Jesus for the very first time. It was God who granted you spiritual life when you were spiritually dead. It was God who did it all and it was you who simply received and it was you who simply came to know that Jesus was Lord. but just in case you your memory might be failing you let me let me read something from ezekiel 36 for us that talks about this powerful work in the hearts of men and women i will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit. Within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from your uncleanliness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Check this out. Verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Brothers and sisters, if this is the kind of power God displayed in freeing us from slavery and captivity in our spiritual Egypt, right? Freeing us from the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. We, can, we know we can trust in his ongoing powerful work of continuing to liberate us from our own sin, from our own brokenness. Moses, after having heard this powerful response from God, what does he do? Well, he goes directly to the people of Israel to tell them everything that God had spoken. But what do we see happen? What, what did the Israelites do or how did they respond Verse 9 tells us, it says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Israelites responded with disbelief, right? With doubt, rejection of God's word and promise. But why? Text tells us that it was because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. See, we need to acknowledge us here this morning that as we talk about trusting God, some of us may have a list of reasons that trusting in God is legitimately hard for us. We may even in our own sinfulness have a better thought out plan for our life, though we would never say that. Our theology is too good to prevent us from saying something like that, but not from preventing our hearts to feel and believe something like that. Our lives, in other words, reflect it because we've been stiff-arming God to go about things in areas of our life the way we see fit. Taking matters into our own hands, right? The reality, though, is that most of the time, our struggle to trust in God's promises don't come just from an intellectual argument against his plan for us. But rather from deep wounds, deep pain that we carry within us that has broken our spirit. See, when you come across a person that's extremely cynical and pessimistic, when you you peel that onion, you get to the very core. There's there's a moment in their life or a season or maybe their entire life where they have experienced brokenness and pain and wounding to make them say, I don't trust anyone. No word of hope can help me. You, You don't know what I've been. You don't know what I've seen. And see, some of us have been maybe fighting our sin purely from an intellectual perspective, telling us sin is bad, don't do sin. Or Jesus is dead, so I just need to have right thinking about sin. Or maybe even just try to muscle our way through resisting sin, right? Trying to somehow strengthen just our own willpower, to overcome sins of anger, of lust, of pride, of control. And God is wanting you to know that you might be fighting in the wrong place. And let me explain what I mean here. What I'm not saying is that all of our sin simply comes from a place of wounding. Scripture is clear and tells us that we are sinners and we love sin, therefore we sin because we love sin, right, It's very evident in scripture. However, sin is way more complex than that. See, sin at the fall affected, yes, our will and our minds. It also affected our emotions. And so there might be some deep wounds, deep within our hearts that have never been resolved, have never come to the light, have never been healed. And a lot of our rebellion and rejection to God's ultimate plan and will is coming from a broken spirit. In other words, there needs to be emotional healing maybe for that sexual abuse that you've never walked through or your father or your mother wounds that push you to find affirmation you never got from them in other relationships. See, the people of Israel had this kind of broken spirit, this cynical mind. That emotional obstacle is what kept them from believing in God's promises for them. And so then after this, the Lord commands Moses to go back to Pharaoh. And Moses shows some of his broken spirit as well. It says in verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me for I am of uncircumcised lips? See, right after the Israelites reject and do not listen to what Moses had to say, the very next thing God calls Moses to do is to go to Pharaoh again and tell him to let his people go. It's a bit amusing, but not really, right? God calls Moses to go to speak to the most powerful man in the world, telling him to let his people go. The people who, by the way, just refused to listen to Moses in the previous verse. Can you imagine the, the discouragement Moses must have felt? Not to mention the frustration and the confusion Moses says to God, the Israelites didn't listen. How do you expect for Pharaoh to listen to me? Lord, I am of uncircumcised lips. Moses here is basically throwing a pity party. And it is in a moment of self-deprecation, but he's doing it with a purpose. He, He thinks that if he can show God just how unwilling he is to do what he's been called to do, maybe God will get tired of him put him on the bench and go find someone else to do the work. See, Moses essentially thinks that God will eventually become irritated with his lack of faith and say, you know what, throwing you to the side, let me go find someone else that's better than you to do what I've called you to do. But God obviously knows better, right, and doesn't buy that. In a similar way as as the people, Moses had probably the most broken spirit of all of them. He must have felt so alone, mediating between God and Israel, sent on a nearly impossible mission to liberate Israel from Egypt. But thanks be to God that he doesn't give up on us when we give up on ourselves, right? Thanks be to God that when you continue, when I continue to say, God, I find someone, I can't do this, Lord. There's someone out there better than me, more well equipped with better speech, with better credentials. I can't do what you're calling me to do. God, I can't be the one in my office to, to speak the gospel into this coworker. I can't do it. Find someone else, Lord. God doesn't push you to the side and said, you know what? You're right. I'm through with you. I'm going to go find someone else. Oh. No. Instead, he comes with cords of love to draw us back in and say, I have redeemed you. I am your Lord. I am the Lord. And remember, child, it's not you doing the work. It's me. I will do this. You have only to trust and know that I am the Lord. And God, in the very next verse, is found giving Moses and Aaron the charge once again to bring his people out of Egypt. He says, it says that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, our God today, this morning, is this Yahweh, the great I am, the one who never breaks a promise, the one who remembers his covenant and is the sole initiator of Our liberation. See, in verse five, God tells Moses that he's heard the groaning of his people, right? That he will act on their behalf to save them from death and from destruction. But there was one whose groaning was not heard. The ironic thing here is that if there was ever one who deserved to have his groaning heard, who deserved to be delivered because of his groaning. It was him. It was Jesus. Yet it was Jesus who became accursed. It was Jesus who became sin on the cross in our place, in the place of doubters, the ones who fail to listen to God's promises, whose pain often leads them away from faith instead of towards the arms of the Father. See, on the cross, the deepest groans in all of history uttered up, by the only perfect one to ever walk this earth, were ignored by the Father on that cross. See, Jesus was forsaken so that you and I, by faith in him, would experience nothing but the warm embrace of the Father. In other words, so that our groanings would always be heard by God. Brothers and sisters, know today that because Jesus has stood in your place, in my place, taken our punishment, secured our salvation, we can trust him with whatever waiting game we find ourselves currently in. Maybe you might be here this morning and say, you know, I'm not really in any waiting game. Everything is pretty good right now. but know that one day it will come. See, when God calls us to believe in Christ, he calls us to faith in Christ. Scripture also tells us he calls us to suffer with Christ. So the suffering will come. And when it does, you can trust his character. You can trust that he won't forsake you. You can trust that he will be near to you. Whether we are in a struggle to believe the promises God has given us through everything Jesus earned for us. In other words, whether we're struggling to believe the promises that are found here. Or we're in a struggle of petitioning God, asking God for things we might not ever get in this life. Things that aren't promised like a spouse, like a dream vacation, like children, like a family member, a friend coming to know Christ. He tells us that we can trust his character. The truth is that for some of us, God might not ever remove some of the things that we're asking him to remove similar to Paul, right? So our our petitions might be, God, could you remove this depression from my life? Could you remove this crippling anxiety from my life? Could you remove this earthly illness but god could you restore these this particular relationship now it doesn't mean we don't keep knocking asking pleading god for those things it's quite the contrary god calls us to knock that we seek that we may find knock in the door will be open. God calls us to keep pleading because he may very well grant us our prayers on this side of eternity. But ultimately, what he wants for all of us is even when the answer is no, we can trust that he is good. We can trust that he's for us. We can trust that his plan is much better than the plan we could have ever conjured up. And this is the kind of thing that gives us strength to keep persevering. If he is perfectly good and cares for me, for you, in ways we could never care for ourselves. And if, if his plan for our life far exceeds our own plans because he sees beginning to end, he's not confined by time, then, brothers and sisters, we can trust him no matter what the outcome is. So be reminded today. Let us all be reminded today, church. God's promises are really worth the wait, especially when waiting is at its hardest. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as weak and feeble and often wayward people desperately in need of your powerful hand to continue to sustain us, to continue to even grant us the faith that we lack. So we pray, we believe, but help our unbelief this morning. We thank you for Jesus, whose groanings were ignored by the Father. Jesus, who was forsaken by the Father so that we, if we have faith in Christ, would never be forsaken and our groanings will always be heard. And you promise to always be near to those who trust in you. Remind us today that your character is trustworthy. We pray this in Jesus' name.